welcome to this evening's event. Uh, Connecting Conversations is a, a well-established series in London, and there are many interesting conversations recorded, and you can find them on, on the website if you want to listen to them. Um, it's produced by Rowan Arts, um, uh, whose mission is to bring arts into everyday life. Um, through making connections between individuals and organizations, communities, and um, different art forms through an artistic program. Um, But this evening's event uh, is a first in that, uh, in in partnership with two local organizations, the Sevenside Institute for Psychotherapy, of which I'm a member, and the Bridge Foundation for Psychotherapy and the Arts, uh, Connecting Conversations has come to Bristol. And this is the first of um, a a number of events that uh, are planned for the future. So it's particularly um, marvelous, really, to welcome you, Patrick, uh, this evening. Um, Pleasure to be here. Oh, thank you. you know, immensely uh, popular author with very, very impressive book sales <laughs> and uh, uh, a, a really significant body of work. Um, uh, since Patrick's first two novels were published uh, famously on the same day in 1986. They were very were, short. <laughs> uh, <laughs> well, I think very short because you had to write on a one of those first... A 19, early 1980s memory typewriter. And yes. so they didn't store very yeah, much at the no, time. No, so well, when, it, when, it, when it said memory full, I thought that's the end of the chapter. Well. <laughs> <laughs> and and <clears throat> those were published when you were, you know, really very young man, 2024? 20, something like that. Something, yes. something like that. <laughs> it's a long time ago. Uh, since then, I think, um, you have further 12 novels, hmm. uh, two collections of short stories. Yes. Um, an outline of the life of Armistead Maupin. That's right. Uh, so that amount of work for the screen, including currently working on... Um, I'm working on a, an original drama series for BBC Two at the moment. Um, and I'm about to start working on a feature film as well. So. And a um, 15th novel. Um, 15th novel coming out in February, yes. yes, yes. A, a, a place called Winter. Yes. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, a very impressive body of, body of work, really. Now, Patrick and I haven't met until today. Um, we, we have had the advantage of meeting over a cup of tea. This isn't actually the first time we've sat down together, but almost. Although, you know, from your work and also the, the number of very generous interviews that you know, you've given in print and um, in, other, in, in audio, I feel, uh, you know, as if I have met you. Because you've got the advantage. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> um, but... Uh, while you perhaps are quite at home in this kind of environment, I think you have that advantage over me. Mm. I spend most of my life working in an intensely private setting. So <laughs> <laughs> this is uh, perhaps interesting. Mm. But, but obviously the, the, the man you are um, in your creative work and, and your uh, personal life are, are not the same thing, but maybe we may explore some of the connections. Yes. Yes, I, I think increasingly writers are expected to become public performers, mm. which I think is a terrible strain for a lot of them because 
I'm, I'm not alone in having, I'm sure, in having gone into writing fiction, really, because I'm, I'm basically quite a shy person. Um, mm. And I've had to overcome that and mm. learn to perform a bit. But I, it leads to a rather split life. You, you spend a year or two working on a book in intense and delightful privacy. And then you're dragged out onto the publicity trail for up to a year. Um, and I found the healthiest way of doing that is to think of it as a separate job entirely. Uh, it's, it's, it's a performative marketing kind of job, which I, and I, as a result, I enjoy it now. I've learned to enjoy it. Mm. And it's fun to meet readers and rewarding too, because you, you complete the circle. Because writing is a very neurotic, solitary occupation. Mm. And um, for an awful lot of writers, they, they never have the fortune of, of getting the feedback. So they, their circle is never completed. Mm. So I, I've learned never to complain when I'm asked to go to yet another book festival in a, well, a village really hall somewhere. <laughs> Thank you mm. for coming. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, I don't regard this as publicity anyway, because I haven't got a book to sell afterwards. So um, okay. this is something. This is medical. <laughs> I'm probably long overdue. <laughs> well, um, but I think that's interesting. You know what you say about the, the two very separate aspects of your, your mm. life: the, the very private and then the performative. But. Um, one of the things that uh, it seems to me is that writing as a way of being is something that you, I, I don't quite know whether it found you or you found it, mm. but it seems to have... Books certainly found me right. very early. I, I, I was extremely lucky to be born to a very bookish household. Um, I, I vividly remember the complaints when relatives came to stay and it meant we had to behave at mealtimes and not read because my parents included me would all be doing this, um, which was a huge gift because it meant I, 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 like a lot of children in bookish households, I was reading and writing before I went to school. Mm -hmm. And I suspect like a lot of such children, I then pretended I couldn't so as to fit in with the other children at school. Um, uh -huh. So I, I, I kind of, because <laughs> it, it, it was a bit awkward otherwise. Um, and, and the writing really, I think it came along in the healthiest way, which was, as, it was an extension of reading. I, I, and I, to this day, feel the two occupations are, are two halves of the same circle. And I despair when I meet writing students who say that they don't like reading much. And I think, well, why are you trying to write? Because the, the two are the same thing. Um, and the writing, I, I think I was very lucky in my teachers mm. who um, encouraged me without over-encouraging me. Mm. And I was, I, I've kept, my mother kept and has dumped back onto me all my exercise books from mm. an early age. And it's quite clear, I, when it came to you know, go home and write a story, I was every teacher's nightmare because I would write about 10 pages when other boys were struggling to do one. There was clearly, a, there was a, a lack of inhibition there. Mm. Um, and unlike a lot of boys, I didn't then get inhibited mm. at the age of, sort of 11 or 12. I think there's a key age where boys become reluctant readers and reluctant writers. Um, mm. and perhaps because I was exuberantly gay at an early age, I, I didn't act as other boys. I, I kept, on, kept on writing. Um, but also that perhaps it was a space to you know, explore things. I mean, when we were speaking earlier, you were talking... Yes, well, uh, there, there was... Back. Yes, there was certainly, there was certainly a, a totally unconscious discovery. Um, I had a very bad year when I was about 10 years old. And by that stage, I'd been at a Church of England 
choir school, a boarding school, for nearly three years. Um, very bad year in that um, my, I forget what order it happened, but uh, during one of the school holidays, I was in a very bad car crash with my mother, which resulted in her um, having a really bad brainstem injury and stroke, multiple strokes, and she almost died. She certainly lost the ability to speak or write or swallow or talk, you know, anything for about eight or nine months, which is an eternity at that age as a child. You, you just think she's, she's gone. Um, and at the same time, the sibling I was closest to, who was much older than me, um, spiralled into a long, nervous, depressive, nervous breakdown, repeatedly committing suicide or attempting suicide and being put in and out of various increasingly awful hospitals um, in an attempt to, to cure them. Um, and I think looking back, that was, at the age of 10, was a, a breakthrough moment for me psychologically and creatively because I think that was the year when I discovered that I didn't have to write as myself. Mm. Um, and I've checked this. I've actually gone back and looked at the, the exercise books from that year and it was the year where I suddenly started writing stories, well, not just about other people, but in the heads of other people. So I think I discovered quite unconsciously that I could ventriloquize and thereby lose myself. Which is um, also perhaps a way of exploring both your experience and what you might imagine is the yes. experience of those people around you. And as I said earlier, I think, I think the experiences of writing and reading are, are intimately linked, and I think the, the, the thrill for a lot of writers, as for a lot of readers, is that mm. chance, that risk-free chance to enter into someone else's mind mm. um, and, to, and, and to feel the things they feel. And, and maybe even to sympathise briefly with somebody you would normally cross the street to avoid. Um, mm. It's, it's, it's in incredibly liberating. Um, and I suspect for a child who is having difficulty expressing themselves, mm. it was a, mm. um, a liberation of sorts and then became a habit. Mm. Yes. Um, and in relation to, you say, for a child who is having difficulty in, in expressing mm. yourself, perhaps, but perhaps also within, within an atmosphere that in which maybe things were difficult to, to express mm. or to yes. talk about. I mean, this was 1970, whatever, 72. It's not, not a period when little boys were expected to mm. talk about their emotions much. Mm. Um, and. Ironically, this was happening in the background of a, an intensely um, artistic school because it, it was a choir school and we were making music every day for several hours. So you were, at the same time as you were being repressed emotionally, you were having to express intensely emotional mm. stuff through music all the time. Um, quite destabilizing, interesting. But very much a kind of paradox. Yes, yes, and, and yet, of course, uh, uh, as children do, you, you accepted it as the norm. Um, it's only looking back I realised how, how very distorting and strange it was, especially when I compare it to my, my brother's childhoods at the same time, which were um, quite, quite different in that they, they weren't in boarding school. They certainly weren't being expected to be little performing monkeys and doing all this music as well as their work. They weren't under the same sort of pressures, I think. Um, they wanted different pressures. Mm. Now, well, one, yeah. thing, one of the things that's very, very uh, much impressed me reading your work is um, both how you describe the, uh, the home that your characters, or the homes mm. that your characters d start from, um, but also how you kind of capture, it seems to me, the relationship between the home as you've described it, and sometimes described it very, very 
succinctly, mm. you know, with a few sentences creating an atmosphere, sometimes in much more detail, but how much the relationship comes across between that home that we start from, but that we also go on carrying inside yes, ourselves, don't yes, we? Yes, the little burden that we all... Yes, and the quality of the home mm. and the texture of it and the kind of relationships that are going on and, and, and all of that, and that we go on starting from it. You yes. know, how much that comes through in your work. And here you are just saying for you and, and your two brothers, mm. actually you started, in a way, from different homes. Yes, and, well, one of the things that fascinates me and which I, I wrote about sort of full on, I suppose, in my novel Rough Music, is, is the way you can get a group of siblings mm. who apparently have had the same experiences mm. and yet will have quite different versions of the same period that uh, you know, one of them will that Alice um, Anne Tyler wrote brilliantly about this in her novel Dinner at the Homesick Restaurant the, the syndrome where you'll have three siblings one of whom thinks their mother was an abuser the other of whom thinks she was you know, a wonderful feminist icon mm. and which one is right well maybe they both are but um, that fascinates me but also in a, I, I find I'm constantly touched by the way we never give up on this impossible ideal of the happy family, the happy marriage. Um, we make the same mistakes over and over again. We never give up making those mistakes. We're, we'll always all be hopeless parents and you know, inadequate children, and yet we, we keep trying. And that, that I find very touching and, um, and an interesting thing to explore as a, as a novelist as well. Well, that's um, also very clear in your work, I think, how your characters seem to visibly be negotiating, if you like, mm. the legacy of the home that they've started with, and of course, as you say, the version yes. that's inside them. Of I mean, the, the fallacy, the, the, the problem I find with, with fiction is that it, it's very hard to describe that process without making your characters unrealistically self-analytical, because you're going into their heads. If you're not careful, you make them too, um, too, emotionally, uh, too literate emotionally, if you mm -hmm. like. They, 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 uh, and I find it's probably for that reason that I've usually been more comfortable writing about women or from a female perspective because it's more, in my experience, women tend to be better at expressing and at analysing and picking over the mechanics of their relationships and their families, whereas men tend not to be given those tools. That's changing, but they tend not to be. So my male characters are always more of a challenge for me. I've just emerged from writing a novel that's entirely from the point of view of the male character all the way through. And it, it was quite tough. Uh, he was probably quite unrealistically sensitive and emotionally articulate. And but, able um, to articulate his own states of mind. Yes, but the, the difficulty, the, the extra challenge is that the, the, this novel is set um, before, well, a big chunk of it before the First World War. And it's, uh, this is a man who doesn't have the vocabulary to describe the things he wants and feels. Mm. So I was constantly having to grope around the unspoken mm. um, emotional situations, unacknowledged. Although that too seems a, a, a theme, I think, in, in your work in, mm. in general, that there's, um, there's a sort of overt narrative, if you like. I mean, certainly in rough music, you know, Will, as Julian becomes. Yeah, yeah. Um, it says, oh, I, I'm very happy. I have a very happy life, and uh, I had a very, very happy childhood. That's my little, that's my little homage to Jane Woodhouse's, uh, Jane, Jane Austen's Emma, of course. So when you begin a novel with somebody saying they're happy and fortunate, you know they're not. Yeah. But yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. And so unsurprisingly, as the novel yeah. carries on, you know, a whole much more complex and, mm. and difficult picture emerges. But what is sort of particularly interesting, I think, then, is the way that I think you do um, 
sort of explore what happens to a character in that space, if you like, mm. that's, that's kind of caused between this disjunction about the overt narrative and, and the other the, the yes. sort of fragmentation, really, that that can lead to and, and things emerging as if from nowhere. And sometimes the sort of secondary line, narrative line in the novel will be in effect about somebody's, almost their self-curing, that they're, they're acquiring the vocabulary to describe their situation, to name their demons and, mm. and move on. So to, to that extent, I suppose my stories are um, therapeutic, mm. um, possibly for me as the writer as well as for the well, reader. Well, that's what I was going to uh, ask you about mm. as well, and sort of linking a bit with you know, where the, the urge and the motivation to write comes from. Yes. Is, you know, it, and it sounded from what you were saying earlier, as if it, it was a way of sort of opening up a it space It certainly to began that way. I mean, when I look back at my early novels, they were clearly performative and dishonest emotionally. I was, they're I was, comic. They're comic, and I think they're using humour to keep the reader at arm's length and to hide me totally. And there was a conscious decision. I, they began to get a bit darker, but I made a conscious decision when I turned 40. Um, and I started on the novel that became Rough Music. I thought, no, okay, I've reached, I've lived long enough now. I'm grown up. Um, I can, I can, I'm, it's time to confront the dark stuff a bit more. So I set out to write a novel that was overtly about my own parents' marriage and about myself as a child. It's quite and, a brave And to explore thing to that. Do. Well, yes, but I mean, I, I fibbed, as writers always do, but I, I, I got somewhere near the truth. And it made me realize all sorts of things I, I hadn't confronted before. Um, and I was very moved, actually, to because one of the things I wanted to explore in that book was the, the, the extent to which a person who's going to end up being a gay man, um, to the extent to which they know they're different before they even know about sex. So I was very careful to have Julian as a seven-year-old, mm. um, a sort of pre, in a way, pre-sex, well, yes, a pre-sexual age, and yet an age which is becoming aware of difference. And I've been terribly moved since that book has been published at the number of letters I've received from the mothers of gay men. Not my own mother, she's never said this, but other, <laughs> other gay men's mothers writing in to say how guilty the book made them feel because it, reading it made them realise they had known absolutely that their son or daughter was gay at a very early age and were just in total denial. And, um, and after reading it, my, my older sister said, uh, she was quite funny about it, and said, well, actually, no, when you were seven, you were so obviously gay at seven. She said, it shone out of you, but none of us had the language or the courage to describe it. But, um, and perhaps anyway. difficult within the context, not only of... Of a family time. in Meltdown, anyway. <laughs> but, uh, yeah. in, in, well, in, in Meltdown, a bit, little bit later. Mm. Yes, although arguably the rot was setting in and some aspects of the family, but... Um, but a, a very establishment mm, Desperately established family, yes, establishment um, family. My father was a prison governor, um, as was his father-in-law. Um, my mother had an incredibly sheltered life as a result because she, she grew up in this almost militaristic um, setup of the prison, prison life. In those days, the governor's family lived inside the prison compound. Um, so she was in her 40s before we lived in, in a civilian house, if you like. Um, how old were you? So I was, gosh, 1968, I think. So I was six. Mm. I was just starting primary school. Because you've written, um, you know, in, in, uh, or spoken in an in interview in a way that, I don't know, can, can seem sort of a bit jaunty, I guess, about what that experience was like. Well, it was lovely, actually. No, it was lovely. There was no bad side to growing up in a prison because um, 
we had we had these enormous houses to live in, which were, were so big. I mean, they were mansions. They were so big that my mother and my grandmother in her day were never able to furnish them fully. Um, and the joke was that when, when they moved on to normal houses, they always had these enormous curtains because they'd had to make curtains like this, which, of course, wouldn't fit in your average street house. Um, so I grew up with, later in life, loads of cushions all made out of curtain fabric because my mother was endless <laughs> recycling. And, and they, were play, they were wonderful playgrounds because they were, you know, they were full of rooms that weren't furnished where we could, we could you know, have a lovely time. And we did interact with the prisoners on a daily basis because the trustees would work around the house and the garden. Mm. Um, my father and mother were very careful to make sure that we were never scared. And we were never scared. I mean, we, we knew they were there because they'd done something wrong. But my pa was very firm about the, he said that the, the, the punishment is the fact that they're here. This is not a punishment. It's the, it's the de depriving of their liberty is the punishment. Mm. They're here to become better people. So that immediately made, made us actually feel a bit sorry for them rather than um, being, being scared of them. But where it was odd is it was so, it was so isolating. So it made us very much a self-reliant little family unit because you, you hesitated to ask other children to come to play. Well, particularly if it was <laughs> important to fit in by not being able to read and write. Well, even you there could, was that too, and, 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 but also just, just living... Uh, there were other children around, but it was a, there was a terrible sort of class system in place, so mm. they, were the, they were the prison officers' children, and we weren't really supposed to play mm. with them. And when there was the Christmas party, we were put at a special sort of high table for just the governor's children, and all the other children were having fun down there, and we weren't, mm. we weren't with them. Mm. Um, so it was a bit, <laughs> was a bit odd. Uh, yes, mm. and there's a moment in, um, again, in, in Rough Music, where it's quite dreamy, you know, Julian mm. and his mama are getting ready to go away in the camper van, and he's sorting out his guinea pig, and it's very dreamy. Mm. And then suddenly, um, there's this moment where we're told that he he's always felt so safe in the camp and safer than he does even at mm. home with all the dogs and the barbed wire and the bars. And when I read this, I'd sort of forgotten, you know, your bi yeah. biography at that point. I thought, oh my goodness, you know, we're going to be in a, a sort of dystopian, futuristic novel mm. full of paranoid anxiety. And, it's a sort of, and then I remembered your biography. Yes, yeah. I thought, oh yeah, that's all right. <laughs> few. That's yes, okay. few. Yeah. But there was actually something slightly shocking about feeling that it had so quickly mm. been normalised like that. Well, I think, and yes, you do. It only, I mean, I've said yeah. this before, but it, it only struck me as being remotely odd when, when I was in primary school and we had to do a picture of our house. Yeah. And of course, everyone finished, and I was still doing windows and bars. And, you know, <laughs> um, but mm -hmm. it, it was odd. And the other thing in rough music that I, I lifted from real life was the business of language. Mm. Because we interacted with the prisoners on a daily basis, we all, in turn, learned filthy words, which we didn't understand, but knew would have a wonderful effect if you said them loudly in a playground. And so we, one by one, were sent home with notes from the headmistress saying, you must do something about Patrick's terrible language. Mm -hmm. um, the other thing, of course, you lifted was uh, Ronnie Biggs. And Ronnie escaping. Biggs escaping, yes. And Although my, it was my father's night off. We, they were at the theatre that night. <laughs> <laughs> they came back to find this, you know, all hell broken loose. But, uh. And in the book, you know, Julian is clearly implicated, isn't yes, he? Yes, that was a bit naughty. Um, um, well, uh, that, that didn't happen, but we did all climb around on the prison roof. Yes. That was quite possible. And my father had no idea we could do it. Mm. Um, one of my big brothers had worked out a way onto the attics 
out onto the attic you know, platform, and then you got out from there onto the tiles, and then you could quite easily you know, cross over and look down into the, these amazing wells with all the prisoners going round and round. Um, yeah, so, you know, it seemed to me that, that maybe that does leave some kind of footprint, you know. I'm sure, I, I think it's a funny thing, isn't it? It leaves a footprint and yet you're not aware the footprint is there at the time, at the time you accept, as children do. Yeah. Um, and I think it probably made me much more amenable to the idea of going on to boarding school at a very young age because it was just another big institution. It was actually cosy compared to prison. It was smaller, so... Um. Mm. <laughs> um. Yeah, I, I was thinking in your, your books too that it's been important for you, I think you said, you know, not to be um, uh, identified as a, as a genre writer, you know, either of or for mm. the gay community specifically. Mm. And in fact, you explore all kinds of sexuality, yes. it seems I to I think, me. yes, there's, there's a wonderful world out there and it's sad to limit yourself to one bit of it. And I, I, I've always been quite firm with my... Um, mercifully very loyal gay readership about, about putting my gay characters in a family context. Mm. I've never really been interested in writing about a, a ghetto. Mm. I, I've explored the, you know, these gay ghettos and I've gone to stay in, on Castro Street in San Francisco and you, you meet people who've just severed themselves off from their families entirely, often with good reason, you know, they're from the Bible Belt of America or whatever. But that doesn't interest me as a writer. I'm much more interested in challenging the characters by keeping them meshed in with their families. Um, mm. And it seems to me in, in quite a sort of, uh, well, in a way that could be seen as, as quite subversive, really challenging kind of ideas. Within the context sort of, of, of standardised gay fiction, it is challenging, yes, because it, it doesn't really let anyone off the hook. Mm -hmm. um, and I, I, I was always very wary of, of um, and I was setting out as a writer, of, of making the mistake of making my gay characters always absolutely perfect and squeaky clean. Um, uh -huh. So they, they're, they're as, I make sure they're as flawed as the rest. And they, I mean, suddenly in rough music, they behave very badly indeed, um, sleeping with their brothers-in-law. Well, it's very interesting, yeah. that, that triangle, isn't it, of a man mm. and a woman in love with the same man? Yes, that does recur. Well, the br recurs. brothers and sisters is a recurring, a recurring thing. Mm. And the other thing I've noticed I quite often do is have men marry women who are sort of sisters, really, rather than wives. Um, uh -huh. My sister has a lot to answer for, clearly. Well, <laughs> we get on very well, but not that well. <laughs> no, I was yeah. just going to ask you, you know, a bit about that, because it does sort of stand out as a, as a particular constellation, really. Yes, it's an interesting it one. I, I think it's possibly simply because I, of all my family relationships, my one with my sister is the most... I think it's the most honest and the most grown-up, in a way. Um, I, I very quickly became... Uh, my mother's carer as a child and then sort of it was a, an easy step from that to, to protecting her and hiding stuff from her really uh -huh. and my father as well. I, I didn't really get to know my father properly until I was in my 20s and then we did become quite close. Mm -hmm. um, you thought it, you were protecting him? I think I was, well, like a lot of young gay men, I was probably not telling them the half of it. They, they knew I was gay, but I, I didn't, um, didn't tell them everything I got up to. Or, um, oh, of course, that's The relationships they knew about. I'm sure it's true of all of us. I think, I think, I think in, in the context of a, a gay man or a gay woman with a kind of middle-class family, uh -huh. it just it, it turns up the volume on what happens mm -hmm. with people anyway, and that, that there is more secrecy 
tends to be more secrecy. Um, whereas with my sister, we, 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 we've never had that kind of dishonesty. There are things we haven't discussed together, but, but there's, a, there's a closeness there and a bond. And in some ways, she was like a second... She was like a more successful mother to me, I think, when I was growing up. I think my mother was exhausted by the time I came along. Um, although there were only four children, there had been two other children who died in, at birth. And she did a lot of looking after her sister's children as well. So often we were seven children. So I think she was just exhausted. And mm. to have a, a sister who was, I suppose, 10 when I was born um, was quite handy because it meant that she could... She would often scoop me out of my cot when I was crying before my mother had even woken. So I, I think you know, that there is, a, there is a closeness there, which is probably as a result reflected in my, mm. the brothers and sisters in my books. Mm. Um, mm. 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 Yeah, so, so sort of quite a lot as you're talking, you know, becomes plain there are a lot of aspects of your experience that you know, could be thought of as, as not talked about, as in some way hidden or kept yeah. separate. Yes. Um, which, as we were saying, is something that's very much I explored in, in, in your novels. Mm. Um, and something about the states of mind that that can, that can give rise to. I mean, you were speaking of your sort of early, I think of as more comic novels, but, yeah. but still, they can be very mad states of mind. That seem oh, yes, and, the, and those early books, are, they're terribly yeah. dishonest because they are actually full of pain and violence, mm. which I don't address. Mm. I just skate over it. I mean, if I was to go back and rewrite a novel like Kansas in August, it wouldn't be a comedy at all, and it would be four times the length, mm -hmm. and probably not as much fun. But um, <laughs> I, I was actually hired to write a film script of that book, and it was very weird doing the film, because the producers wanted it to be funny. And as I was picking it apart, I kept thinking, well, actually, no, this is a really painful situation, and so is this. And um, it became a much darker film than, than the source book. Um, so we actually had to add in a happy love story for the hero to make to lift the whole, the whole thing. It never got made, of course, but uh, <laughs> well, <laughs> films, well, films often don't. <laughs> but you know, then in 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 later books, I, I think there is, and obviously, perhaps particularly notes from an exhibition, mm. but but in a, a number of them, you know, the, the states of mind that this leads to um, when there are things that um, Christopher Bolas has a phrase about the. Uh, the, the the, un, the unthought known, mm. you know, when there are things that are kept separate, but but still go on having an impact. Yes, um, and I think with notes from the exhibition, notes from the exhibition, that's particularly particularly the case because the the father in that family is so adamant the children should be should never be lied to mm. and be told everything. Mm. And so on the face of it, the, yeah. the family's Quakerism means that everything is out in the open. Mm. But the structure of the book lets you see that actually each of the members of that family has their own psychodrama that, that, that a, a large bit of which they're hiding from the others. Mm. Um, and of course it's very satisfying then in, in, in the novels too when these memories do sort of come mm. and cohere and you know, perhaps particularly in A Perfectly Good Man, you, know, you yes. do manage to give us a, a very rounded um, coherent sense by the end in yes. which lots of things have been brought together which you know perhaps is possible in in fiction in a way it isn't actually possible. well yes and actually it's both those novels life. I mean a, a perfect good man was conceived as a parallel a sort of sister novel mm. brother novel to notes from exhibition um, and it, it absolutely mimics it, its structure and in both novels I cheat by putting the happy ending somewhere in the middle mm. um, 
the, the chronological happy ending, but then you go on and you find out other things. So it's, mm. a, it's like a double helix mm. of, a, of a book. Mm. Um, it's funny, I, I, with my latest book, I tried really hard to write a book that began at the beginning and went through to the end, and I delivered it as such. And I thought, okay, here you go. And both my agent and my editor said, oh no, we'd like you to take this bit and chop it up and put that bit there. So I've ended up actually chopping time around again, but not to anything like the same extent. But, but there is a sort of way that that feels like that is how stories get understood. I think it is, because as we, I was saying to you earlier, the, the, one of the parallels I think with psychotherapy and, and writing a novel is that you begin with a crisis. You begin with somebody in a state of crisis quite often, and then you have to peel, help them peel back the layers. And I do feel I'm helping the character. In a funny way, the, when I create a character, I, I don't know the half of their story, and I have to sort of... It's almost as if I'm helping them to reveal themselves to me. And uh, a large part of the creative process for me doesn't involve writing. It involves an awful lot of sitting around, um, building up, and it's entirely about the characters and building the characters and building their lives. And then you, um, presumably, in relation to them, and in the creative space, a kind of dialogue yes. that is going on as things emerge in a sort of associative and, and, way. And it is odd, because when I actually start to write, it feels, doesn't feel as if I'm making it up anymore. I feel as if I'm yes. just trying to be as faithful as I can mm. to this, what's now become like an artificial memory, mm. almost a false memory mm. of the character's life. And, and I, can, I find I can spool it backwards and forwards in my head and, and keep replaying it until I get it right. But it... I don't feel as if I'm making it up. So it's interesting, um, isn't it? Are you creating it or are you finding it? Mm, no, absolutely. Um, and I've, I've often said that space. if I, I begin each book with a, an, a question that I, to which I don't know the answer, mm. and it's in the best interests of the book that emerges that I don't find out the answer very quickly. And often I don't find it out until I'm almost at the end because mm. um, mm. I, I need that to keep me going. And I think if I get it right, mm. the reader will be put in the same position that I was in as writer. The reader will, will need to know mm. um, and will often be, be maddened and irritated along the way by, by the things I throw at them. But, mm. um, and it feels as if the writing has been for you, um, you know, both a, a, a a constructed for yourself therapeutic experience in this exploration of things. But also mm. you've said, you know, while you're terribly interested in psychotherapy, <laughs> you, you really w w would feel that that motive to write would be threatened by, by following... I, I think it would. I think if I, were, if I were cured, I'd go off and be something useful and I'd stop writing. Um, but it's, <laughs> but I, I mean, that's putting it crudely, but I do, I do, I, I do believe, it's not a flip thing to say, I do believe that... that um, a lot of us write fiction from a, yeah. a kind of neurotic compulsion. But it and, implies and it's not useful. Well, I think if you're you lucky, you end up writing stuff that's useful both to you mm. and to your, mm. your readers. Mm. And I, I, I think because I come from a family that's driven by duty, mm. social duty, mm. and um, two of my siblings are doctors, and I, I, I've, I've long felt deeply inadequate and mm. not being a useful member of society, really, or having a grown-up job or whatever. Um, it's been enormously heartening to me when I started hearing back from readers who said, no, this, this helped. I started thinking, oh, okay, in its fluffy way, fiction can, can help. And I've seen this too when I run creative writing um, courses for the Arvin Foundation or whatever. You will often find um, student writers coming along who... No, they, yes, they, they don't have a great gift. They're never going to be a published author. 
but clearly they have discovered how much it helps them uh, exploring fictional lives through you or exploring their own life through fiction it, it, I, I can see it, it you know, really really helps and it's um, I've learned to be braver now with, with the ones who can't write, just exploring the idea that actually this, this is still a nice thing to do. You, you don't have to obsess over the idea of getting published. It can just be a, a rewarding discipline. And I've, I've had very interesting conversations with um, a fantastic writer called William Fines, um, who has set up this charity called First Story, where he parachutes into troubled schools um, a couple of writers who then work very closely over a, you know, a, a term or two with children who are failing, who are falling through the net in one way or the other. And what they do with them is to work on creative writing projects, which are then treated in a very grown-up way. Those projects will end up being published as a proper paperback book, which could be sold and so on. And it has an amazing effect on those children. In about 80 five percent of the cases who've gone through a first story project they they go back on track and they start achieving again and they stop falling through the net so clearly there is something in in the writing of fiction that helps people to extend their their sympathies in a useful way maybe uh, step outside the box and look at themselves from the outside and, and in reading too we think can do I'm that sure. through identifying sure. with, with an you know so maybe Maybe it is useful. <laughs> yes, fiction is useful after all, yes. yes. <laughs> uh, I wanted to ask you too, though, about uh, uh, you know, Cornwall, um, mm. which is clearly such a character in, in many of your novels in itself. Yes. It's, it's a place as character, both in its darker aspects and in a ter terrific healing potential. And it's obviously been terribly important to you kind of throughout your life. It sort of has. I think I... I but especially once I moved down there, mm. and it, I felt claimed by it. I, I, I'd grown up in, largely in Hampshire, in Winchester, which is a very, very beautiful place. But I, I think because it was so indelibly associated with my education mm. um, and with the institutions of my education, I never really felt convincing as a Winchester person um, because somehow, I don't know, it, it didn't, feel, didn't feel like a, my mm. real home. Mm. And Cornwall seemed to claim me. And I think that may be partly purely because it was my own. It didn't belong to the rest of the family, so this was a place that was, I could make mine. Um, but I don't make any great claims for Cornwall. It's, it's a beautiful place, but I think I'd have been equally affected by landscape and so on had I gone to live in Pembrokeshire or East Anglia. I think what mattered was getting away from the city. But also to a um, place you had been to as a boy, singing at... Uh, I had been there as a boy, yes, and, that, that, and the fact that, that I then became involved again in the music festival I'd visited as a child was a lovely home completion. Home not home, yes. in, in, um, in a way. But I, I think it's more landscape. Landscape uh -huh. generally matters to me. Mm -hmm. um, as a writer, and I know I don't function well in cities. I, I love coming to cities, but I rapidly get overstimulated, and, and I, don't, I don't work as well. I need that slightly kind of artificial, you know, pleasant tedium of living in a remote country place where there is natural beauty all around you, but there's not a great deal going on. Um, and knowing where I live now, it's like being in the arches. I mean, the, the, all our... I'm surrounded by, by my husband's relatives and, and, and really the height of drama is often you know, an escaped cow or something. Yeah, it suits good. me. And also a place where you know, there's opportunity to garden and, and, and to be yes. involved with the physical earth, which must be a very helpful balance it, to a life lived. Hugely, hugely so, because, because as, I said, as I said earlier, writing is such an, uh, an unhealthily kind of neurotic, in, internalised 
occupation. And it's, it's, I think, very healthy to balance that out by being able to go outside and do something useful. Mm -hmm. So if I'm having a bad writing day, I know I can always go to Aidan and say, give me a job and you know, go mend a fence or something. Mm -hmm. Yes, I, I'm not sure I'm quite the right person to say that, you know, life based on introspection is entirely uh, <laughs> neurotic. Um, but it may be true. But certainly the, the, mm. the need to find a balance and, and to make yes. one is living life. And I, and well I, I find it's, it's an increasing thing. I do, maybe it's because my books are getting darker, but I find I increasingly I dread starting uh -huh. uh, the next book. Um, it, it feels like a, more and more like a, a willed period of, of depression, really, that I'm going into a dark place. I need to go into it in order to emerge on the other side, but I, mm. I, I, I put it off more and more. Um, and, yeah, I, I, maybe I'm just becoming more, more self-conscious about the process. Mm. Um, and that's one of the things I've really enjoyed about writing for television and working on film scripts, because those processes are intensely collaborative, almost from the word go. Whereas when I work on a novel, I'm entirely alone yeah. um, for a long chunk of time, and, and I don't get to show it to anybody. I don't even get to talk about the ideas much, partly because of my own self-censorship. Um, I've learned not that if you share too early, it can, it can kill it, because somebody might react in the wrong way. But compared to that, when you work on a film script, because there's so much money riding on it, the people writing the checks want to know at every stage what you're planning, what you're mm. doing. So you're constantly getting feedback and you're constantly showing the work. Much less solitary. It's far less solitary. The phone is ringing all the time. Um, which, I, it, it's fun. It's fun. It's, I've never worked in an office for any length of time and it's, it's more like having an office job. You, you have colleagues. Um, well, there is so much more we could talk about, but um, I'm, I should have explained the structure of this uh, event at the beginning, so sorry about that. But um, we knew what it was, didn't we? <laughs> we, we knew where we were. And so um, that's, that's the end of our, uh, of our conversation, right? two-way chat. And it's uh, an opportunity now for all of you here um, to ask Patrick any questions. Uh, that, that you would like. Just say a bit more about the kind of internal life of the characters that you write and then the life that they have on the page, because it sort of seems from what you're saying that there's a lot about them that probably doesn't make it to the page. There's a great deal that doesn't, yes. I'm, I, I'm a very old-fashioned writer. Um, I've, I've, having, having finally got away from my terrible old 1980s typewriter, I started writing in ink and I love it, um, mainly because the process has become so messy and organic. It's like a compost heap. And I, I, I've become very wary of the way Microsoft Word makes your work look terribly finished before it is finished. It tidies it up all the time. So I work in these big notebooks. And at one end of the notebook, I will write what I'm actually hoping might end up on the page. But at the other end, I have an ongoing quarry for each character. And I will write stuff in there that, as it occurs to me or questions to myself, things I need to think about about those characters. And I, I end up with a lot of backstory often which doesn't make it into the book, but I need to know. So I need to know what kind of childhood they had or you know, what, um, what are their secrets, what are their fears, mm -hmm. all those sort of things. Um, 
oh yes and, and, and actually if I get the process right the, the, the characters stay with me in the most irritating way and I carry on I mean I, I, I in my most recent novel, A Perfectly Good Man, I brought a character back from notes from an exhibition mm. because I was worrying about her and I wanted to reassure myself she was going to be okay. Um, so I brought Morwenna back in order to, to give her a happy ending, really. Um, <laughs> but the, the, same, the same thing happens with the bad characters. I mean, the, the, unfortunately, they, 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 if you're going to write from someone's point of view, you've got to get right under their skin. And mm. in A Perfectly Good Man, I wrote probably the, the nearest to an evil mm. person I've ever attempted. And it was a nightmare, actually, because he, he got right under, well, I had to get under his skin. It was like wearing a second-hand fat suit day after day. And he took over much more of the book than he was meant to. I'd originally planned to give him just two chapters. And he, he, he took more, oh, well, right, okay. But there's a much, but the book I've just delivered has an even more um, disturbing character in it who, Unlike Modest in, in that book, who is physically repellent, the, in the new book I've tried to do a character who is um, bewitching, but very, very bad. And, and uh, that, that disturbed me because it revealed all sorts of things to, about my, my own sort of makeup that made me think, hmm, yeah, maybe I shouldn't be putting this into print. <laughs> anyway, sorry, it was a long rambling answer to a... Yeah, Feel free to chip in if something something occurs to you. <laughs> when your yes, we can we can hear you. Before. When your father was uh, governor of Wandsworth, uh, he had the misfortune uh, to have a celebrated prisoner escape, one Biggs. How did this affect you as an mm. individual in the family? The, the, the notoriety of this event, and the press, and gloomy home secretaries mm. visiting, it, it must have affected you as a family unit. Well, well, journalists were far better behaved and far more respectful back then. Um, you know, they called my father sir, for heaven's sake, when asking him questions. And, and that, we were aware this, that something had happened. We knew Biggs had escaped, and you know, the boys at school would ask lots of questions, and there were there was a, a photograph of my poor father looking terribly harassed at his desk. But actually, um, the fuss about who was to blame and so on died down remarkably quickly, at least in the public eye. I think, I think things carried on being dug over, and certainly they, they changed the structure of prisons rapidly after that. that that's when the, the anti-climb wall came in, I think. Um, because I seem to remember he escaped over the exercise wall. They, they, they threw over a ladder from a van outside, and he, it was a blindingly obvious way to escape. I'm amazed no one, no one had tried it before. Um, but the, the main way it affected us in, in uh, years to come, which affected my poor father, um, was that, of course, Biggs then became a, a sort of tabloid celeb. And every now and then there would be another article in the Sunday colour supplement with a photograph of him whooping it up in Rio. And, my, my father would grind his teeth. In fact, my mother quite often would, 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 would edit those pages out, would sort of cut them out and throw them in the bin so he didn't see them. Um, yeah, it's not a thing he liked to talk about. But, uh, I, I, think, I think he felt, even though it was his night off, he felt personally responsible for it. Um, it would have been far worse, though. I mean, Biggs just escaped. I think, I think had Biggs escaped and then killed somebody, that, you know, that could be much, much worse. So. Oh, 
Um, I was just thinking about the similarity of maybe psychotherapy and writing and working with characters or creating characters and psychotherapists and clients and thinking how often as therapists we might be affected by what the client is feeling, thinking of transference and counter-transference. Mm. And I just wondered if you get affected by your character's mood and what they're going through and how you deal with it. Oh, good question. Um, I often just get terribly depressed uh, if, 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 if I can't find a way out for the character, if they're, they're stuck, I get stuck. Um, and in fact, it's, it's interesting that the novel I've most recently worked on is told entirely from one viewpoint. And one of the ways in which I found that very hard was that I couldn't go sideways. When, when, when he reached a difficult bit in the story, I had to stay with him. Whereas I became aware that in previous novels of mine, I could cheat emotionally. Um, and step sideways and write something from another character's viewpoint. And one of the great benefits of writing novels like Notes from an Exhibition, which are told in piecemeal form, is that you don't have to write them in the order in which they'll appear, ultimately. Um, you can write them and you can just follow your instincts and just write the characters you like and put off writing the characters you don't like and so on. Um, but I, I'm not really answering your question, am I? I'm avoiding it. I, it does affect me, I think is the short answer. Um, and I, however hard you tell yourself that these are characters you're making up and you are in control of them, <laughs> because there's the imperative to make them lifelike, you sort of have, as the writer, I think you have to buy in to the idea that they're flesh and blood and that they, they may even be keeping things back from you. They may have secrets from you. Also, if they are arising from a place that isn't entirely conscious, which I think you suggested quite a lot is the yes. case, then of course you can't be. But then you have. But then in your dark, in your darkest hours, you, you have to remember that they're all you. <laughs> um, yes, which, like a dream. Yes, which does get very depressing sometimes. So. <laughs> there was another lady with a hand up just behind. In um, Notes from an Exhibition, you write very convincingly about um, the Quakerism in the family and also about um, the artist and the visual arts and so convincingly that I thought it must be from your life, but I'm wondering how much of it was research and how much of it... It was entirely was research. I, I can't draw a snail. I, I have no artistic ability at all. Um, and I was hugely comforted when I was working on that book. I thought, well, I have to try to understand how people can paint and how they can do it. And so I, I bought that book, Drawing on the Left-Hand Side of the Brain. Or was it the right-hand side of the brain? Anyway, the right side of the brain. But I found it hugely comforting because it basically says, the reason you can't draw is because you became articulate too early as a child. And I thought, oh, well, that's okay. I, I, can, I can live with that. But I worked my way through, solemnly, through all the exercises in the book. And every now and then I did something that was almost like a drawing, but I, I really couldn't do it. But luckily, I have a lot of friends who are wonderful artists. Um, I live in a sort of artist colony in Cornwall. Um, so I was able to pick their brains and eavesdrop, in a way, on their own creative processes. And I discovered that actually, although the techniques of, of painting are so totally different to anything I do as a writer, the psychological ups and downs of the creative process were remarkably similar. 
Um, so we all have bad days and good days. We all get affected by stupid things we can't control, like somebody calling round at just the wrong moment. And um, so that that was that was quite strange. But I also insisted that like, I, I I got artists to read the appropriate bits of the book to make sure I hadn't done any howlers. Um, and, and basically, I just concentrated on making Rachel's creativity as close to my own experience of creativity, the, the sort of hunger to get on with your work um, and, and the, the monstrousness, really, that emerges from that, the fact that it makes you quite often very cold to people around you because you're, you're just thinking of this one thing that matter has to, for it to be any good, it has to matter more to you, at least temporarily, than anyone you love. It has to be you know, the special thing. Um, but conversely, the, the Quaker, Quakerism was a, a big adventure for me. I, I knew a few Quakers when I was growing up. I'd never been to a Quaker meeting or anything. And I hit on the idea of the Quakerism in the book very early on when I was working, working out who the characters were. And I knew what I wanted to write was a novel about the most difficult mother imaginable, um, who was at the same time something of a genius, but, but you know, a, a destroyer mother, if you like. Um, and I realized that when I saw that she was going to become bipolar, I thought, okay, I've got to find a, someone to keep her alive because if she has her own way, she will just burn out and die very early on in the story. And I want her, I was very keen that she should die of natural causes um, and have a long and interesting life. So I then hit on this idea that actually a Quaker would be the perfect husband for her because I, I knew that Quakers have this incredible record of, of being patient with impossible people and of um, not giving up on people. So I thought, right, what I've got to do now is start going to some Quaker meetings to find out what happens. And I went along to the Penzance Quaker meeting thinking I can just slip in at the back and be anonymous. Well, for a start of the Quaker meeting, as some of you may know, there is no back. <laughs> you sit in a circle, everyone is visible. And the, what I also didn't know was that at that stage, the clerk of the Quaker meeting was a wonderful retired lesbian headmistress, had read all my books and knew exactly who I was. So the moment I came in, she said, you're Patrick Gale, you're not a Quaker, what are you doing here? Um, and so I had to sort of come out to her and say, well, actually, I, I'm, I'm researching. And then she couldn't have been more brilliant. And she introduced me to a Quaker who is almost my neighbor. He lives really, really close, so I'd never met until then. Um, who was a, raised a Quaker. So funnily enough, in Bristol, his parents were both Quakers. So he was what used to be called a birthright Quaker. And he works on, our lives overlap in all sorts of ways because not only was he gay, but he works on the Quaker um, Committee for Penal Reform and so on. So he's got a keen interest in prison life as well. Um, and he was absolutely brilliant and made me go to lots of different Quaker meetings. He was the one who showed me that, that the beauty of Quakerism is that there is no one way um, that each meeting has a different flavor depending on the people who attend that meeting. And so just by going to three or four meetings just within Cornwall, I got this much wider sense of it. But the, the funny upshot of this is that I've now twice been asked to be a national spokesperson for the Quakers. And I'm not a Quaker, but, but that novel has become the nearest they've got to a, a recruitment tool. And people are still showing up at Quaker meetings saying, oh, I've read this novel. And the woman will say, oh, another one. Yes, come in and sit down. And, um, so I, 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 I'm quite chuffed in the way that it's, it's drawn so many people into Quakerism because I... I I, I can't understand why it isn't the world's fastest growing religion because it seems eminently sensible and grown up, unlike the religion of my childhood, which um, 
seems to be uh, you know, slowly imploding, but still there. Uh, mm. <laughs> yes, there's a microphone just behind you. <clears throat> Hello, Hi. I'm Nick, and I'm a music therapist. I'm just wondering, um, does, does um, music have a role in your life and creativity? Music has a big role in my life. Um, it, it's, it's not the career that got away, because I don't think I was ever a good enough musician, um, but it, it's sort of my, my oxygen. I, I, I play the cello um, a lot. I, I, I play the modern and the baroque cello, and, and I play in various orchestras and bands in Cornwall. Um, and I used to sing you know, from boyhood onwards. I, I've now stopped singing because I, I felt it was, I'd done enough of it and I wanted to explore the cello instead. But it, it, it's incredibly important to me psychologically. It's my big release, along with gardening. Um, I think because it's l largely non-verbal uh, and it gets, I love the way music just cuts to the heart of the matter emotionally and you can express so much without, without using words. Um, matters a great deal. And I think music therapy is, is, is something that, that, funnily enough, it's, it's one of, I collect careers, because I've never had a grown-up job, and I meet people at dinner parties and think, oh, that's an interesting job. I'm like a sort of job vampire. I want to know then everything that they do. And I warn you, music therapy is one of the things I've saved up for a character. <laughs> so I might be asking you questions in the bar later. <laughs> I, I was very struck by this picture, you know, of the, your prison childhood and the picture of you on the top table looking out at everyone else or as a child looking down into the well where these figures are moving around. And your description of this is completely, you know, benign and happy, and I understand that. But I wonder if it also functions, functions as an image. You know, there's a lot going on. You know, you knew there was activity. You knew it was activity which was, um, you know, generated from criminal activity, mm. that these people were, however ordered and structured the life they were living, there was, you know, it was full of secret dynamics. Mm. And I wonder if somewhere, you know, being a novelist now recreates that, you know, that you look down and watch the you know, the movement of these figures and speculate about them? Oh, I don't know. It's a bit deep. <laughs> I think, I think I, yes, well, well, I think, it may be that it, what it did, what it, one of the things it did was to make me inquisitive about motive and what, what brings person A to fate B. Um, because although, as I said earlier, my father and mother were careful never to make us frightened, um, they were intensely moral, church-going types, and we were well aware that the men had done bad things. Though I think compared to children now, uh, we knew far less about those bad things. I mean, I'd, if you'd said the word rape to me, being a precocious child, I'd have talked about you know, the rape of the Sabines, but I'd, I'd, I didn't know what happened to the Sabines and what the rape involved. It appeared to involve men with beards lifting naked women in the air, because I knew it from art. But I didn't know what rape was. I didn't really understand about murder, particularly, or the, the niceties of murder. Um, so we, we were terribly sheltered. But do you um, think that perhaps, even though you may not know in that very conscious way, mm. if people have to be locked up for something they've done, 
and put that together with the fantasies that all of us as children have. I mean, look at fairy tales. Yes. Um, it, it does perhaps, you know, create what you were speaking of curiosity, you know, about what is that's so bad, you know. Yes, well, it, it, the, the thing it has certainly done, I think, has given me a, a lasting fascination with these closed worlds. Um, I have a, my, my guilty pleasure is films about nuns. I love, I've always, <laughs> films and novels. Yeah, no, no, it's, it's I, I love the, 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 that, those, the stories about these enclosed worlds. Funnily enough, there's a wonderful novelist, Patricia Dunker, and she and I were once on a panel together at a, a, a festival where somebody asked us, what is your guilty pleasure? And we discovered that my guilty pleasure was nun books, and hers was submarine books. So we were both drawn to these work closed worlds, but mine were full of women and hers were full of men. Um, <laughs> make of that what you will. But I think it's... <laughs> but it's the dy the, I think what interests me is the dynamic of these artificially enclosed enclosed communities and, and what can flare up. I, I, um, having almost finished this uh, series for BBC Two, I, I was asked by the BBC what I'd like to do next, if there was a, a dream project in my head. And what I would love to do is write an adaptation for television of Sylvia Townsend Warner's wonderful nun novel, The Corner That Held Them, which has never been done on television or film. And it's a wonderfully funny, dark novel about a, a Fenland nunnery during the years of the Black Death. Sounds a laugh a minute, but it's, it's actually it's very funny because, of course, being Sylvia Townsend Warner, she doesn't write about religion so much as about the psychology of power and about cross, intelligent women who have been locked up against their will and are making the best of a bad job. And it's, it's, it's a brilliant, brilliant novel. It will make very, very plum television, I think, with wonderful roles for older actresses too, which is something the BBC needs. So watch this space. <laughs> it's like a Quaker meeting, isn't it? Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, how do the ideas for your novels come about? Do you have a sort of store of ideas, or does it, you know? No, no, and I have no idea what my next one at the moment will be about, although having mentioned music therapy, that's already starting something really. They, they tend to come about by accident. Um, often they'll just be one little thing, one little, like a little sort of trigger. Um, so with notes from the exhibition, I got it into my head that I was interested in writing about a destructive mother. And then that, that snowballed, so I... I, I went from thinking about motherhood to thinking about madness, um, because quite by chance, around that time when I was starting to work on the book, um, an ex-lover of mine who was bipolar and an artist committed suicide. And the sort of shock of that got me thinking about, about the, the intimate links between creativity and bipolar disorder. And then I read a wonderful book by Kay Redfield Jameson that made me think even further. And then my sister said, oh, you should reread The Bell Jar because actually it's funny second time around, and it is. Um, and then that got me suddenly finding Rachel's voice. And so it, it was a very circuitous route and has very little to do with the book I ended up writing, but all those things feed in. And the novel I've just finished, uh, which is a huge departure for me because it's entirely, it's costume drama, it's Edwardian. Um, 
if I'm honest, that grew out of um, an encounter years ago with a, group, with a psychic. I was hired by the Evening Standard to go and interview, well, not interview, to go and consult a series of psychics all in the same day and then write a rather mischievous article comparing what they'd said to see how accurate they were or not. And spookily, two of them said almost exactly the same thing. It was as if they'd rung each other up. And one of the things, the really scary, there was one really scary woman there who um, claimed to be talking to all sorts of dead relations of mine. And she said, you need to think about the black sheep in your family and focus on the black sheep. And at the time, that didn't really stick at all because I thought, well, there are no real black sheep in my family. And then more recently, I started working in a very sort of amateurish way on putting together the family tree. And I found this story that had been hiding in plain sight, which is of my great-grandfather, my, my mother's grandfather, who, when I was a little boy, was referred to as Cowboy Grandpa. And I just accepted this. I thought, okay, Cowboy Grandpa. And, you know, because I'd never met him, he'd long since died. It, it, it just went over my head. And then I started asking questions, and I realized that in our dressing up box as children, there were these amazing things that I'd had no business being there. Some amazing Native American moccasins and clothes and a pair of enormous mittens made out of real bearskin. And I asked my mother about them and she said, oh yes, cowboy grandpa, cowboy grandpa. And I discovered that cowboy grandpa actually was um, a very well-to-do young man. He and his brother, who was less well-to-do because there was only enough money for one of them to be raised a gentleman and the other one had to train as a vet. But they married... They married, the two brothers married two sisters in this huge family of 14 children. And um, all went well to start with. And he and his young wife moved to the seaside and they had my grandmother. And then suddenly he did something wrong, which was so wrong and so unspeakable for whatever it was, that his in-laws rounded on him and said, you've got to just leave the country, leave your wife and child with us. We'll look after them. You are to go. And he did, and he took up the offer that was then on offer of, of free land in the Canadian West. The, the, the great railway line across Canada had only just been laid out, and they would frantically, the British government was frantically trying to people Saskatchewan, as it would later become, with British farmers rather, before the Americans would go up and grab the land. Um, <clears throat> and he went out there, and he farmed until the 1950s, and he came back just the once, and I found this little photograph of this wizened old man with no teeth. Very sad. And he only came back very briefly. And my grandmother, who had never known him, sent him back to Canada. And he died not, not long after that. And all these years later, I started digging, trying to find out what I could. And I found a little half-written memoir my grandmother had done as a very old woman, in which she said that he had been sent to Canada because he'd lost his money. And that clearly wasn't true, because he clearly carried on having money, he carried on sending money home, he lived very well in Canada compared to the other settlers. So of course I decided he was probably gay. And I then looked into that and discovered that yes indeed, there are now lots of historians in Canada digging into these amazing stories of um, embarrassing men and some embarrassing women who in British families sent to Canada, it was a safe place to send them. And especially, ironically, the boys, because they thought, oh, well, it'll make a man of them if we send them out there. Not realizing what they were doing was sending them into a community where there were no women at all. Um, just lots of hunky men in beards and flannel shirts. And, um, so I, I've had enormous fun with that, but, but it grew out of this completely left field 
stimulus. Um, and it's ended up becoming a book that's very far removed from that. It's, it, it, it's got you know, the sort of big gay love story in it, but it's also as, as much about um, Native American approaches to um, alternative sexuality and all sorts of strange things I discovered along the way. It's been, been quite a journey. And lots of very odd um, psychiatric practice as well, which I only knew about from a nun film. Sorry, I'm not a nun's this. If any of you ever seen that wonderful Audrey Hepburn film called The Nun's Story, where she falls in love with Peter Finch? Well, there are those strange scenes when she's having to work in this terrible snake pit of a psychiatric hospital where they're forcing all the poor um, patients into baths, making them get in these baths, and the patients are screaming and fighting, they're being forced in. And I, I found out that about this, this, this was done as a really pretty standard treatment called the continuous bath, um, practiced quite widely in the early years of the 20th century, alongside a thing called the cold wrap, where you were mummified almost in wet blankets and sheets, and then a rubber sheet to make you hot, and then another blanket around the outside and left to sweat. And both these things were meant to make you calm. Sorry. Anyway. I, I, anyway, that's the sort of thing that happens. You start writing one kind of a book, and then you end up stumbling on other things. Mm -hmm. So the, the, the short answer to your very simple question is that I have no idea where the ideas come from. <laughs> I, I just hope they keep coming. <laughs> I think... I think you mentioned that you sort of starting to put off writing books and 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 delaying it. And I'm sort of interested whether to say a bit more about whether it's becoming more difficult and why that might be, and whether you see a future where you might not write and your creativity might go somewhere else. Well, um, I think I think it's becoming harder because I'm, I'm maybe I'm raising my own standards. I'm feeling I need to aim higher with each book. And that tends to mean going, into, going deeper and deeper into darker territory that I might not want to go into. Um, I don't know. Maybe it's actually a process of attrition as well. Because, as I said initially, half the fun of writing fiction to start with was this loss of self. And maybe I'm starting to find this willed loss of self, suppression of myself while I write. Um, harder and harder, maybe it's sort of rubbing me off, I don't know. Um, and, and as for imagining a, a period when I stop, I can't imagine not writing. Um, but I can, funnily enough, imagine not writing novels anymore. I, I, it's odd, I, 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 I think that as I'm getting older, maybe I'm finding it just tougher and tougher working on my own, and I have really enjoyed working collaboratively on scripts. Um, so I keep an open mind, and I like to see what comes along. And if somebody asks me to write a play for the theater, I, for instance, I'd love to do that, or to devise something out of workshops with actors. Um, so I keep an open mind. But my real fantasy, of course, is to make so much money I can stop and just play the cello and work in the garden, because <laughs> those are the things I really enjoy. Those are my guilty pleasures, along with nuns. Um. Could I just pick up on that, Patrick, because you talked about the reluctance to start, mm. and then you talked about the fact that when you get into it, it becomes the most important thing in your life, yeah. more important than aid and more important than your music. So at what point 
does it switch from the oh my god I don't want from, to from do the horrible this, job to, the, the to, two are almost the, best the two are almost simultaneous in a way because I don't I don't start writing immediately. Well, the, the process of starting a book is, is a sort of series of, of stages, but a, a long, the, almost the longest stage is the bit where I'm not writing. I'm just thinking and reading and thinking and reading and going, gradually identifying what the area is I'm going to be writing about and, and getting into that. Um, and I suppose it's actually in the, in the course of that stage that it takes, it takes me over. Um, and I... I've learnt that actually the, the best bits of my books tend to be the bits that I write close together. It's always very dangerous if you go away and come back. Um, so I, I've learnt to try to structure my writing days and my writing period so there's as little interruption as possible. Um, and if I know I'm going to have to go away, that will sometimes affect the structure of the book. I'll actually, so my latest novel is a, has got in effect three novels within a novel, three different, quite different sections with a different flavour. And that I knew that, that was going to happen quite early on, and that gave me respite. I knew I could go away and leave the book and then come back to it. Um, and I had a long period when I was just travelling around in Canada looking stuff up. But I was writing while I was travelling, but a lot of the writing was... Um, to do with landscape and stuff that I didn't necessarily use, but it, I, I needed to remember how it felt um, as I travelled through it. There's a question there. Yeah. A couple of years ago, I had the privilege to um, work with or, or chat to a 14-year-old girl who wrote prolifically. She wrote lots of novels. And one thing she would say to me fascinated me, and I think you said something similar earlier, so tell me if I'm wrong, but I wonder if you could say a bit more about it. And what I think you said was there comes a point when you're writing that you cease to be the creator of your characters in a way, and you're, they are in control rather than you. And yes. Did you say something like that? Oh, good. Yes, I, mean, I understood well, you that. It's, so, I mean, it, it almost feel, you have to pretend that they're in control, but they... they in a way, it's as if you've projected them to such an extent that they've become, they've become real for you. And I think that's actually quite important creatively because you need, you need them to ring true on the page. And there's a, a world of difference, I think, between writing where the characters are at the mercy of the plot so the, the author has clearly decided, this is my story and this is the story I'm going to tell and I will jemmy these characters into my story. Um, I, I always fight shy of that and try to make sure the things that happen happen because my characters as they've evolved would behave in a certain way um, which can be frustrating because I'll often have sketched out a, a version of the story and about two-thirds of the way through I realise it can't possibly end that way that character would not do that um, I wrote a novel fairly recently called The Whole Day Through which is a, a love story and you um, the, the woman is involved with a, a man who's married to somebody else and I, on purpose, did not decide while I was writing it whether they would end up together or not. Um, I thought, I'll, I'll see if they earn it or not. I'll see where they go. And to the irritation of quite a few of my readers who've written cross letters about this, I, I, I decided actually she could do better than him. Um, but also that ironically, given the love story I'd given them, this poor woman had ironically had taught him how to love his wife better so he would as a better person would no longer be able to leave his wife um so that i mean that's a case in point where the, the characters were, were very much dictating how the plot developed i i wasn't 
dictating it. Um, it, uh, I'm always very wary of sounding like one of these ghastly sort of fey lady novelists from the 19th century who was saying, oh, so my characters tell me what to do. But they, in a funny sort of way, they, they need to. You need to... Um, I think the, the trick is to, to allow the characters to develop really quite fully before you begin to write what will become the novel. Um, and then you stand far more chance of being true to them and to, to what they would, they would do. And in that novel that you're referencing, it's very interesting, isn't it, that he, he fails to make a life with her twice. Yes, he's, he's, he's hopeless, failed. <laughs> hopeless, hopeless man. Kind of gets his second chance, yeah. and he, but that's completely believable. That, well, I think you know, he, people who fail often, uh, parche the, the presence of all these wonderful therapists, but the people who fail quite often fail repeatedly. Mm. Um. Mm. Particularly when it meant you know, leaving behind a, yes. a home that, however unsatisfactory, mm. was nonetheless gratifying in all yeah. sorts of ways. Well, and also uh, people, well, novelists especially are apt to forget this, but happiness is frightening quite often. Mm -hmm. um, to, to embrace happiness and to say, no, yeah, this, is, this is a good life is it's, it's hard and it's a big challenge. And I think for a lot of people, it's much easier to carry on being, especially men, to carry on being a bit hopeless. Um, Especially if it's a change, isn't yeah. it? That change. I mean, Anne Tyler <laughs> writes wonderfully about men, I think, and she's particularly mm. unsparing. Um, but you know, true, true to life, I think, in the way that she, she shows how the, the way we raise boys almost conspires to make them grow up to be often rather unreliable emotionally and, and um, prone to causing yeah, damage. You the saying this, not me. <laughs> <laughs> No novelists are allowed to say anything. <laughs> I can highly recommend dinner at the homesick restaurant for anyone here who hasn't. I was really pleased. I think at the Guardian the other day, John Sutherland did a little article on great ten great novels that no one's heard of, and that he picked that. And I thought, yes, it's. Uh, Probably have time for um, one or two more. Yeah, that's amazing. I just wondered whether, unlike J.K. Rowling, you were published immediately and what you would say to emerging writers who are oh. um, looking to find a publisher who will love their work. Yeah, I was, yes, I was unspeakably lucky, unlike J.K. Rowling. Um, we were talking about this earlier. It, I, I, I'm, I'm, quite, I'm quite old for a novelist, and I started quite young, and I had the good fortune to be published to start with at a period when publishing was unrecognisable for what it's become now. Um, back in the mid-'80s, publishers still routinely bought novels for two and a half thousand pounds, nothing. Um, just to see, just to, just to, just to see, just to you know, take that little risk, because it was a very small risk. And then you, it meant that the, the author could work an apprenticeship in a way. And that's what I did. I, I, I delivered a series of novels, none of which really should have been published. And none of which would be published now, I suspect. Um, but they cost the publishers so little money and they didn't spend any money on advertising them or marketing them. And you know, I, I wasn't even sent to read in bookshops. I just carried on writing. But it meant I could learn my craft in public. Now, that, that doesn't happen anymore. The way publishing has been restructured with the getting rid of the net book agreement and this fierce competition that's come about thanks to 
uh, opening out book sales into supermarkets and the Kindle, and, and also um, with agents, it has to be said, getting rich on demanding bigger and bigger advances for certain authors. You know, the, the, what's happened is publishing has gone from being a fairly level playing field for writers to being this insane sort of precipice with most of them at the bottom end earning almost nothing. Um, and I think, I think for writers now, what's happened is uh, they're starting out now, the internet has replaced what I had. So you now increasingly serve your apprenticeship by trying out your work on these readers you'll never meet who are out there on various online websites. And, and some of those websites are very clever. Some of them, um, I think, have been set up by literary agents who rely entirely on other readers to give the thumbs up or the thumbs down. And if a book gets enough thumbs up, it moves its way up the chain and finally the, the agent will take it on and try to find it a publisher. But um, I, I don't despair if you are an aspiring writer because I think, I think there are as many readers as ever. I think what's happened is the market has just changed shape um, and, and you just have to be very brave about, well, what's changed is you have to be much braver about putting yourself forward. And, and I, I think you have to be much better at self-marketing. Self-publishing self has lost the stigma it used to have. It used to be kiss of death to admit to a publisher that you'd paid to have a book published, because that was like saying everyone had turned it down. Whereas now, because of um, the way Amazon is luring everybody into um, paying to have their work uploaded onto Kindle, um, the stigma has gone. And publishers, quite wisely, are starting to use Kindle and that whole marketplace as a way of winnowing out the dross. And the ones that do well, it'll be obvious, and they can then cherry pick them. Mm -hmm. Has that depressed you unutterably? No. <laughs> oh, I see, okay. Right. Time for one last question? There, there would be time for one last question, if, if there is, yes. You may have a second question since there's no competition. <laughs> While we're on the subject of online, how do you feel about fan fiction and does that kind of close the circle in the same fan way? Fan fiction? Yeah. <sighs> I'm, I, I don't really know about fan fiction. I have to say, because I don't, I, don't I don't read enough of it to have a... Have, have a um, I don't know. I, don't, I wouldn't know where to look, actually. I need to ask a 12-year-old, probably. I, 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 it does fascinate me, though, this idea that, that um, much-loved television series and novels or whatever have, a, have this, this sort of shadow life through fan fiction. And um, I, I love it when you get these mad intersections. Like that novel that came out a couple of years ago called Mr. Darcy Vampire, which um, is terribly funny. It just rewrites Pride and Prejudice on the premise that actually Lady Catherine de Bourgh is a vampire queen sitting on a nest of vampires and, and that this, this poor girl who is falling in love with Darcy is like this helpless victim being lured in. Um, it's, it's fun. I think it has its place. I, like the great tranches of fiction that I know nothing about and which I, I, I know I could never attempt. Um, I fantasize about it. I mean, I, I would, I'm reading a science fiction novel at the moment and it's absolutely thrilling and I would love to be able to write science fiction. But I'd be very nervous of stepping outside my, my neat little nest. And I think if I did, I would probably write under another name. So you would never know. 
I wouldn't. I certainly wouldn't do a Ruth Rendell and announce that it was me. I think. I think. I. I'd, I'd be. I'd stick to my guns and hide behind my pseudonym. I did years and years ago try to write a Mills and Boone, and it was turned down as being too cynical. Which I think is very sad. <laughs> um, <laughs> didn't play by the game. Okay. Um, well, I. You know, I hope that this uh, slightly ambiguous relationship with your work of both fearing getting into it and. and um, feeling it's entirely necessary to your life to continues and that you will go on producing well, novels so. as well as um, <laughs> perhaps plays and screenplays and, and other things. Okay, um, we must finish. Uh, and the final thanks to uh, Patrick and Claire for uh, a tremendous evening. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Very kind of you. Thank you. <laughs>